a beautiful evening this evening, don't you think? Tuari and I were just uh, walking up here, and that cool, crisp air, these hills are just so beautiful, and the, and the trees, and the, the particular light at this time of evening. So, so striking, so beautiful. It, it really is a beautiful evening on planet Earth right now. Yeah, it's a troubled world and it's a beautiful one. And I want to come back to this because this is, I think, a, an important theme. Last night, uh, Tori shared with us such a inspiring talk. I loved your talk, Tori. It was just the yeah. It's like, what am I doing teaching? I want to be on retreat. Holy! And I appreciated her enthusiasm around opening <laughs> and being with Dukkha. I, I, I found it so. Uh, inspiring and uh, to be with challenge and and suffering and and the potential of that for freeing our hearts so inspiring really it allowed me to contact that potential for freedom through cultivating the capacity that she was talking about cultivating this capacity to be with dukkha and tonight i, I wanted to uh expand this a little bit um to offer some reflections around the potential for freedom through cultivating the capacity to also be with the beautiful. The capacity to be with uh, the other words I'd use in this realm of the wholesome or the good. Because you might notice, like I've noticed, it can be just as challenging to really open to beauty, to goodness, to the wholesome. And in, in uh, these, these early discourses uh, of the, that you find in this tradition of, of Buddhism, be- beauty and goodness are sometimes equated with each other. So there's this word kalyana, which uh, sometimes many people know this word because it's connected with kalyana mita, which is sometimes uh, translated as spiritual friendship, or uh, another way it could be translated kalyana is good friendship. But kalyana can also mean beautiful, beautiful friendship. And it's used in other contexts, like kalyana silo, beautiful ethical conduct. Or around samadhi, that this kalyana, there's something beautiful about it, there's something good about it. And I love this, that that one of uh, the invitations as a practitioner is to see that goodness, that wholesomeness, is so beautiful, like the beautiful that beauty that we're surrounded by in this natural environment, and that it can tear my heart open in such an amazing way, the way that the, the, the beauty of nature can do. So I'm using these words interchangeably, beauty and goodness and the wholesome. As I said, it's, it really is a beautiful evening in so many different dimensions, whether it be the environment out there that touches me or another thing that uh, begins to touch me, especially at this point in a retreat when I'm teaching, is the beauty of your hearts. Here you are engaged in this uh, journey, not an easy journey, but there's beauty in there, and I hope that it's something that you can touch and savor. It's like, how, how can you allow all the beauty out there in, fully in, to, to learn how to savor and linger with that beauty of the natural world. And also, how can you learn to linger and savor the beauty that's uh, arising in your hearts? And I just know some of you might be thinking, you haven't been on my retreat today. There hasn't been so much beauty. So hopefully um, I can maybe reveal that there's even uh, seeds on a day like today, if, if, if that's been one of your days. 
And as I mentioned, and some of you might be aware of this, it can be tough. I know it has been for me. This has been a practice to open to the goodness, to the beauty in, in my life. It used to be the case in my life that it was easier to take in negative things, someone would say to me, than the good positive things. I don't know if anyone's ever experienced this. It's like it's almost like too much. It used to be too much for, some, for, for someone to say something good about me. It's like, oh, that's a little too, too difficult for me to let that in. And it was easier with the negative things because it was just affirming the sense of self I was functioning from. There was this habit of kind of creating a kind of self around all that. So it was more aligned, habitually aligned. So the open to the beauty there. And I, I want to begin by offering a poem that I think speaks, speaks to this challenge of opening to this beauty, um, the challenge of opening to what's going well. And, and this poet's using the word happiness, you know, in the way that I'm using this word uh, beauty. It's a poem by Alison Luterman called Confessing to Happiness. And it begins... I'm scared. I'm scared to confess to happiness. I love that first line. <laughs> I'm scared. I'm scared to confess to happiness. Because I know the jealous fates in their dolorous heaven, how they love to feast on the heart. I know they've already marked the spot where one of us dies and the other stands open-mouthed and uncomprehending as dirt closes over our one song. But for just this moment, I want what I have. And maybe you can relate to this a little bit. I know I can, the sense of it's difficult to confess the happiness, to open to it, to actually say, this is possible for me to linger here and to open to this. Because there's all this danger around, right? And she gives this description of the danger that's around. And then there's the turn at the end of the poem. Oh, but just for this moment, happiness is here. I want what I have. And I love this description of happiness, not the kind of the gleeful happiness that's sometimes sold in the marketplace that feels kind of vacuous, but a sense of contentment. This moment's good. I want what I have. And to confess to that, to open to that. Because if, if your mind's like mine, you might notice that it's a mind that can be quite skilled in not wanting what we have or wanting more of what we have, rather than simply oh, wanting what I have, being here and content. And I, I want to propose this is an art, a skill to, to really let this in, to, to uh, let in the goodness, to let in the beautiful and to let in the wholesome. And, and I want to point out that sometimes this can be because of, you could say, physiological habits that are in our system or her habitual tendencies of the way our uh, physiology works. Because sometimes there can be, uh, and, and some people theorize that this kind of comes with modern living, where the, the physiology can be in this continual slight threat response that kind of manifests in a feeling of just being a bit on guard most of the time. And this makes it tricky to open to the beautiful and the good, because when I begin to kind of savor anything that's good or wholesome or pleasant that's settling and relax into that, my system can start to feel threatened by that because it's losing its habit of being on guard. Like my system starts to feel safe and, oh, this feels so good, the, the goodness and the beauty here. And then there's something in the system that says, that ain't safe. 
because you're, you're, you're letting your guard down. So then it comes up again. And sometimes you can feel that, right? You start to settle. And then there's a little bit of, oh, is this really safe? Is this really okay to really confess to happiness, to be content? And in Buddhist terminology, of course, this is the, what we've been pointing to, kind of subtle reactivity, these subtle forms of grasping and aversion and delusion. And so I want to point out that what we're exploring is more than just the thoughts, like thought patterns. This is like physiological patterns that I can begin to untangle with this path and this practice. To, to begin to untangle this, this kind of almost physical, this physiological belief that I can only fa- feel safe when, I, when I'm hypervigilant. Or I can only feel safe if I keep just a little bit of anxiety going in the system. And of course, this isn't a conscious decision, but sometimes it can feel like that. At least I've felt that, that at times. It's like that's what my, my body is somehow saying in these habits. And this is why uh, I can't simply, at least I've noticed, I can't simply think my way out of this. I need to support kind of my body, my physiology to in a very gradual way, very slightly moving in a different direction to opening. And this is why this is a training, this is a path and a practice to open to beauty, to open to goodness, to that which is wholesome. Training and confessing to happiness. What's it like to open to confess to beauty and goodness? And it's in many ways along the lines of what Tuari was uh, sharing. Like I, I'm cultiva- cultivating this capacity to be with the wholesome and the beautiful. And I, uh, I'll get into this later. And also the next step is to be able to be with the wholesome and the beautiful even in the midst of challenges. This is where I think it can be so powerful. So what's the art of this? How to train in this? How to explore this? To nurture our hearts towards freedom, towards, towards a sense of deeper contentment. And I want to share with you a, a passage that is a practice that the Buddha encouraged practitioners to do. And it's, it's a practice that I'm going to invite you to do. You could do it in the evenings, just for like a few minutes. And it's one of the recollective practices called uh, Sila Nusati. And Sila Nusati, Nusati is to recollect. Um, it's actually connected with Sati. It's a kind of way of recollecting. It's, it's kind of uh, reflecting in one's mind. Around, around one's sila, around, uh, in this case, the, the good deeds, the beautiful deeds, the wholesome deeds that you are engaged in every day on this retreat. This is how the Buddha d- describes it. And I love this description. The Buddha says, when a wise person is resting on a chair or a bed or on the ground, they're past beautiful deeds, their past beautiful conduct of body, speech, and mind, settle down upon them, rest down upon them, and lay down upon them. It's like the shadow of a great mountain peak in the evening as it settles down, rests down, and lays down upon the earth. In the same way, when a wise person is resting on a chair or a bed or on the ground, their past beautiful deeds, their past beautiful conduct of body, speech, and mind, settle down upon them, rest down upon them, and lay down upon them. And then that wise person can reflect, oh, I have done beautiful and, and skillful deeds that keep me safe. So wise ones don't sorrow and wail and lament, beating their breast and falling into confusion. This, this experience is a kind of pleasure and happiness that a wise person experiences in this present life. 
you hear this practice? I love this practice, the way the description. You're just hanging out. You can hang out in your bed. You can be sitting. You can be lying down on the ground. And you're just savoring the beautiful deeds that you've done in the past to let them lie down upon you because it feels so good. It is so pleasurable. It's one of the deep, beautiful pleasures that the, the Buddha is trying to turn us on to. It's important to hear how the Buddha is teaching. So often, really, what the Buddha is teaching is like, well, you've been in, involved in all kinds of pleasures in your life, but you don't know the really good ones. The ones that really are so delicious. So what would it be like, just a few minutes, to begin to practice this? Taking in your goodness, your beautiful deeds that you've been engaged in today. You've offered other practitioners on the retreat today your silence. What a beautiful thing. Maybe you kind of messed up and said something to somebody you're doing a yogi job with for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. But then you have the rest of the day where you're offering silence. What a beautiful thing. Usually we, th we think about, oh, man, I messed up. Oh, such a bad person. But you miss all the other hours of really offering something. Or you did your yogi job, or you rang the bell, or you're nurturing in kindness and mindfulness within yourself, a sense of patience, a sense of persistence, even if it's a tough day. Those are beautiful qualities. They're so beautiful, and one of the things is we don't recognize how beautiful they are. And this is what I love about Buddhist ethics around this. Is, and this is really what the Buddha is trying to emphasize, is to savor ethical integrity. This is what he talks about the most. Is that I don't only get to enjoy all the things I did do in a day that are wholesome, but I get to enjoy all the things I didn't do, which is a huge list. <laughs> I love this. Like, maybe like me, not yet, you never know, maybe something will come up between Twary and Matthew and I after this, but I haven't yelled at anybody today. It's pretty good, even if I do. Like, I still have, like, most of the day where it's been, been pretty good. That's so good. I didn't steal anything. I didn't hit anyone. And, and I know this sounds so silly in some ways, but I, I want you to slow down and just to imagine something. Can you imagine how different the world would be if for one day nobody yelled at another person out of a sense of anger or hatred? The whole world would radically change. And yet we can, we can dismiss the power of what we're doing. And in some ways it's because I can forget the other thing. I do live in a troubled world. And when I realize what a troubled world I live in, I value even more beauty. So this is important for our lives and for the world that we live in, to savor that. To cherish it. Remember, somebody wanted to create a bumper sticker, and I, I loved it. it. It goes like this. Lord, help me accept the truth about myself, no matter how good it is. Because <laughs> right, we always are doing the opposite. I shouldn't say we. I notice my mind do that so much, and maybe you can relate to that. And this is a part of the path and the practice to gladden the mind through the wholesome. This is the basis. Like if we were to do a real retreat, we'd have a week where we were just doing things like practicing generosity and ethical conduct and hanging out, lying on the ground outside and feeling the goodness of our deeds. And then we begin to do this practice. 
of, of meditation because it creates a foundation for this to unfold in a particular way. So sila nusati. And, and I want to point out, this has taken a while for me to land because I was conditioned in the opposite way around stuff. Like I was conditioned how I always get it wrong. How I'm a sinner. You know, I was, I was brought up in a Catholic family. And for those of you who are Catholic, maybe remember, I think it was around, when was the first Holy Communion? Like second grade? Maybe I was like seven or eight years old. Those of you who went through that. So here I am. I'm seven or eight years old. I'm sitting there at the front of the church in line to do my first confession. Right? Because you, you have to go to confession before you receive the first Holy Communion. And I remember thinking and feeling terrified, is this a worthy sin to confess? <laughs> this is like, now this is my real confession. I made up most of the sins so that it could so it could sound good. I was something around like stealing Twinkies, but we never had Twinkies in our house. But I was seven or eight years old. So here I am, I'm being shaped to reflect on how I got it wrong and how that's, that's crucial to moving forward. So it's this habit of how bad I was, how I get it wrong. And so when I heard this talk of like ethics in Buddhism, it was kind of a turnoff because I always connected it with, oh, damn it, I got to think about how I always get it wrong. And then I realized the Buddha was saying the opposite. <laughs> you need to reflect on how you get it right a lot. So this is important to understand. This is not about being ethically perfect because that's the way I started to hear all this. Oh, I got to be perfect, whatever that is. Like I make mistakes. I unfortunately hurt other people with my unskillfulness. I stumble and I trip and I fall down in this world of ethics. Yeah, it's complicated and complex. Ethics. I don't want to dismiss that. And yet I can overlook. There's a lot of goodness happening moment after moment that I need to lie down and receive and feel the beauty of. So I invite you, really honestly, just a few minutes, can you reflect on your goodness in the evening? Maybe while you're going to sleep, to, to learn how to begin to savor that. And then there's other dimensions of beginning to open to that which is beautiful and good and to confess to it. A little bit closer now to the meditation of itself. And that's around states of mind or qualities of heart that are arising on, on retreat. And again, if your mind's like mine, you probably notice that it's conditioned to notice the challenging qualities of mind, the challenging qualities of heart that, that arise, the difficult ones. And it makes sense in terms of mammalian physiology. That there's, there is a tendency in terms of how this mind and body perceive to look for danger to what's not working so it can be aware of that. So it's been helpful to me to know, oh, I, I come by this honestly in some way, like, yeah, I'm, I'm navigating this mammalian physiology. And yet the Buddha points again to something different. So, so this is his description of what it is to be mindful of mind states. This comes from the four foundations of mindfulness about how to be aware of these qualities of heart and how practitioners does a practitioner abide contemplating mind as mind or meditating on this, these states of mind here, a practitioner understands the mind that's affected by grasping as the mind affected by grasping. So I notice, Oh, there's craving here. There's grasping in the mind. And the practitioner understands a mind that's not affected by grasping, that's not affected by craving. To notice, 
Well, there's no craving in the mind right now. There's no grasping. To notice the absence of that is just as important. And the same with aversion, to notice when there's aversion in the mind. But sometimes what gets missed is to notice when there's not aversion. This is important. I'm grasping a lot, but there's no aversion. Oh, isn't that interesting? (laughs) Vice versa. You can hear the Buddha orienting our hearts and minds to what's going well, even in the midst of challenge. I'll get into a little more nuance around that. This is part of how mindfulness is taught by the Buddha. And it can be overlooked. Because it, it can be sometimes with, with meditators, and I don't know if this uh, have, have been this way, where there can be such a skill at noticing when the mind is hooked by reactivity. But that's just half the game. It's also to notice when it's not hooked or not as hooked and to really let that in. So how to refine the skill, it's, it's just checking in with the mind every so often when there's reactivity and then notice when there's not as much reactivity. Okay, there is some aversion, but it's actually not that strong right now. Oh, there's a little bit of contentment here. Oh, interesting. Oh, interesting. I'm feeling kind of calm now and there's some tranquility because I can skip that over. It could be when I'm just walking out of the meditation hall. It's like, oh. Glad that one's over. And then it's like, oh, tranquility. It counts. It really does. And this takes noticing these wholesome states of mind that are arising even ever so briefly. Like maybe your mind is lost on that freight train of thinking. And then there's that moment, right, where where mindfulness just appears, and there it is, and you notice that the mind is lost in thought. And in that moment of noticing it, there's also just a little bit of a sense of okayness, like, oh, yeah, that's just what the mind does. There's the seed of equanimity beginning to sprout. Can you notice that? Because when you do that, it's like watering the seed so it continues to grow. Just moments. That's all we're looking for, moments. As the, as the Buddha says in the Dhammapada, just drop by drop is the water pot filled. We're just looking for drops of all of these things that we're talking about. And then the patience for the water pot to be filled. Or maybe you're having a hard time and a challenge, and yet there's a moment, even if it's a moment, where your heart softens towards yourself. There's a tenderness, and you can acknowledge wow, I'm having a hard time and I care about myself. There it is, beauty right there to savor that. There might be a few moments or minutes of mindfulness to not only be mindful, but to notice there's something beautiful about mindfulness. Because sometimes it can be seen as just as a tool. I practice in order to exercise this tool of mindfulness. But then I kind of miss the beauty of it. It's like, it's, it's, it's like when we uh, uh, treat nature merely as something as instrumental that we can harvest things out of, we, out of it, we can get things out of it, we can prove our lives out of it, and then we miss the beauty of nature. The same thing can go on with, with spiritual practice where it becomes a tool and we, we forget how beautiful it really is. Or this whole realm of concentration or samadhi. Your mind begins to collect around the breath a little bit, even if it's for a few minutes. It's like you're just feeling the breath and you're lingering with it. And there's a little bit of tranquility and a joy and a light and a lightness in the body, in the heart. The mind is more concentrated. There's less thinking. It's collected. There's a sense of well-being. This is this realm of samadhi. It's really pleasant and beautiful. And this can happen on retreat, even if it's for a few minutes. And sometimes practitioners can feel like, oh, I, I shouldn't savor those pleasant experiences. I shouldn't linger with, linger with them or allow them to stabilize or nurture them because I might get attached to them. I might crave them. I better not do that. 
I remember sharing something like this with a teacher, my concern about like, oh, I'm noticing all this grasping and craving around, you know, the samadhi. And she said, well, of course, it's just going to happen. Like that's, that's, that's what it is. She was, she was like basically pointing the way I understand it is like, you need to go through that grasping and craving. You can't go around it. Of course, teachers are going to be saying, you know, don't grasp onto it or don't get attached to it. But you are. Guess what? That's just what comes with it. It's kind of like when I uh, started learning to ride a bike, for me, well, my balance is really that great. I got scraped a lot. I probably still have teeny little scars still on my knees and my elbows. I just fell off the bike a lot. That was just part of the process of me learning how to ride a bike. But I continued to go through that process, and then I was able to stay on the bike more. But for me, I just had to get scraped up a bit. It's the same thing if you start to feel the pleasantness, the samadhi quality of meditation that's so sweet. You're probably going to fall off the bike a lot. You're going to get scraped. You're going to want to crave it. You're going to spend half your retreat hoping to get it back. I wish there was another way, but I know of no practitioner who hasn't gone through the trials and tribulations of grasping and attachment. So I want to normalize that. And then, then at the retreat, we can share, you know, showing each other our, our scabs and our scars. You remember doing that? It's kind of fun. So that's the process. That's what comes with learning how to savor the beautiful and the wholesome. It might get scraped up a little bit. And so this uh, points to the other skill that's here, which is I need to begin to learn to savor rather than grasp. Especially around samadhi, but around any kind of beautiful quality of, of mind and heart. What's it feel like to really fully savor an experience? And you can, you can try this even just outdoors here. This is what I love about this place. Is you're doing walking meditation, come to the end of your lane, like Tuweri was saying, just stand there and just open to, if you, if you find it pleasant, just open to that beauty. And get clear for yourself, oh, interesting, this is what it feels like to fully savor this beautiful environment. Oh, interesting, now I can feel the kind of the grasping. Like Sometimes what I notice around the natural environment is like there's an opening and there's almost like I can feel kind of a subtle tightening that begins to happen in the body. Like I want to capture it. I like, I want to keep it. Or I start to think about like, man, I, can, I need to be at Spear Rock much more often. Like, this is great. I need to do this all the time. Oh, that feels different. And simply opening. As a practitioner, you need to clarify that for yourself, how these feel different. That's how you learn how to define the difference between grasping and savoring is, is how they feel. And just by doing that, you might notice there's going to be more of a skill of how to linger and savor that which is beautiful, that which is good. And of course, we, we can't always explore this because I don't really get to choose if, if experience is going to be mostly pleasant or beautiful. Sometimes it's just difficult. And sometimes that's the way with retreats. Sometimes I've been on retreats where it's just like, wow, this is one of those dukkha retreats, which are so important. And thank you, Tori, for the inspiration around that. And other times there's a mixture, and other times there's a little bit more, just uh, the beautiful, be the whole range. And you don't get to choose. Wouldn't it be great if you could choose? Like this, this time, this time I think I really am going to just do the, the beautiful good one. That'd be great. Maybe I'll do one just because of Tawari. One, just one dukkha retreat but it doesn't work that way. So savoring, opening to the beautiful in this way. And then there's this exquisite skill, which I think is so important, which is can you notice the good and beautiful within a difficult situation, within a challenging situation? This is so powerful. And for me, this doesn't always work for everyone, uh, sometimes I, I have a person 
or some person who seems to fully embody this ability in a way that is dramatic and inspiring, even though it's, you know, it's, it doesn't have the, maybe the dramatic, inspiring quality on retreat. Uh, but somehow through their lives, they were able to em- embody this or manifest this sense of being able to see the beautiful and the good in the most difficult situations. And that person for me is uh, Eddie Hillisom. I don't know, does anybody know Eddie Hillisom? Yeah. So Eddie, she was a young Dutch uh, Jewish woman who spent uh, the last year of her life in Westerbork Transit Camp in the Netherlands. This is during World War II. It was, it was the year, it was, the year was July 1942 through July, September 1943. And during that time, it's important to remember, you know, many people don't know what transit camps were, but transit camps were places where um, Jews from the Nazi regime, they were interned in a transit camp. And then, you know, it was really unknown. They knew they were going to be going to one of the extermination camps, but they they knew they were going to, but they didn't know when. So it was inevitable. So here you are in this transit camp, and at some point, you're going to be taken off to one of the extermination camps. And she lived uh, in this transit camp for a year. And miraculously, she uh, kept a diary, which were so weird. They, they were, her diaries were strangely found in some attic in the 1980s. Um, and then they were published. And you find these passages from her diaries that, that show this ability when she's in the transit camp. Like one passage, she says, the sky is full of birds. The purple lupins stand up so regally and peacefully. Two little old women, women have sat down for a chat. The sun is shining on my face. And right before her eyes, mass murder. You hear this ability, right? Something is actively horrific going on. And she's able to touch beauty and love and tenderness in the midst of that. This is before that last year of her life. She uh, she struggled with depression coming, and you can hear this this skill kind of budding even before she entered the transit camp. She says, "My depressions are only of the sort that turn life suddenly into something like a muddy ditch inside you." Which to me, you know, it, it can to me that's such a. a a kind of visceral sense of how depression can feel. Like, wow, wow, this is, this is what it feels like, this muddy ditch that's inside me. And then she says, but that, j- that ditch is just a short, narrow strip in a wide, blossoming landscape. In the past, everything would suddenly be gray, muddied, and tied, but now I can see the whole landscape and the j- ditch is just a part of it. So hopefully you're hearing this fits so well with, with what Tuari was talking about just around anxiety. It's not about getting rid of. Eddie didn't get rid of the, the ditch. He was able to broaden, to open to what else is here. So, so I keep her in my heart because she's such an inspiration in this way when I'm on retreat. Like, how, how, can I, how can I embody, just in small ways, the skill of, of opening? And one way of really playing around with this, and I invite you to play around with this, it, it, it can be really quite effective for some people and others only some of the time. And it's the practice of and. 
the practice of noticing what's here and then noticing the and and what else is happening right here, right now, that feels supportive. Wait, I get, get this from my partner. The best ideas in my talks come from my partner, just so you know this. <laughs> it's really so effective. I remember practicing with this. So let, let me give an example of this, of, of when I use this and how it can function and how you can play around with this and you might find a variation. So for me, when I can't sleep at night, this can be a great practice. So maybe right, I go to sleep. This is going to be the same just in sitting meditation and walking meditation, the process I share with you here. And I maybe sleep for a little while, and I don't know if you have this. It's like, it's like the visitor comes worry. Worry, lo- worry loves to visit me sometimes late at night. Or it's just that there's a lot of energy in the system, or there's excitement or lingering inter- 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 uh, irritation or the to-do list pops up. And then I, I just begin with what we're doing here. I simply notice what's arising. Oh, worry is here. And to notice in that way, it's true. I need to step out of the story about what I'm worried about. I need to really practice of like, I'm not as interested in the content. There's a place for exploring the content, but in terms of this practice, I'm more interested in what's fueling it. Oh, it's worry. That's all it is. It's worry. Worry's here. So I'm practicing stepping out of the story turning towards the emotion. And then it's the practice of, and what else is happening right now that feels supportive as I'm feeling the worry? And sometimes it's like, oh, I I feel my back against on the bed. Oh, interesting. That feels kind of supportive. Here's the worry and here's a different experience. My back against the bed or or even sleepy and tiredness. Yeah, there's worry and there's sleepy and tiredness. And, and the sleepy and tiredness can actually feel supportive for me at times. Or I feel there's a lot of churning in my stomach and in my chest. But the arms and, lack, uh, and, and, and legs, they feel, they feel relaxed. Well, that feels a little supportive. They're also here. This is all I'm doing is noticing worry and what else is here. It's like there's the ditch, but then there's this broad landscape. I'm not getting rid of the ditch. I'm not getting rid of the worry, but it broadens the attention in a way that sometimes it gives this ability to be with all that's going on. Oh, yeah, here I am with the the worry, and here are my arms and my legs. Worry's here, not so much in the arms and legs. So hopefully you hear in my example, I'm, when I get a sense of what else that feels supportive, I'm going to kind of direct present moment experience, which often for me is some aspect of the body that feels supportive. Not always. Sometimes it can be sounds. I've even used in, intense times at nights, we have a fan. Even in the dark, sometimes I can see the fan blades. I'm like really looking at them. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm freaking out. Oh, and there's a fan here. Which is really great, especially because usually that's the thing of like, yeah, and I'm just lying here with a fan. Like, okay, I'm freaking out, but just like a fan here and I'm lying here. Oh, yeah, all of it. It's, again, it's learning the skill. I need to step out of the story. I might not need to do it a thousand times in the walking meditation or the sitting meditation. Noticing what's there. Maybe it's judging, worrying, sadness. And what else is here? What else is supportive? And that supportive thing might not be pleasant. It might even be kind of unpleasant, but it, it feels supportive. And it's fun to ask the question because sometimes it can be surprising what pops up that is supportive of what else is here. And then I'm with it, especially in the direct experience. It's not something I'm thinking about. It's not a thought. Something in direct experience. Just one quick example of this too, which was really helpful for me. I used to have these uh, gnarly shame spirals. I don't know if anybody has had one. It's like 
it could be around, you know, maybe if I do something just a little bad, it's like Zoom, like I'm like the worst person in the world. It could also be around things that I seemingly were okay, but then like my mind can create the thing of, no, actually, you really did something horrible, Brian, and you really are a horrible person. And I don't know if anybody's experienced this, but it can have a kind of momentum to it. Where it's like, and I remember where I first started to get a sense of like, I could start to feel it coming on because it was with meditation, I could feel that it was a kind of a bodily thing. And then the, the thoughts would start to spin. And this whole dynamic, I didn't have this specific teaching, but I noticed when I look back on it, I was doing a similar thing as I was stepping out of the story as best I could, I was feeling it in the body. And then I was just getting a sense of what else is here. It could be I'm walking and I just feel my feet or I'm outside and I'm looking around and I'm using the kind of beauty of the environment to kind of counterbalance this as I'm really just trying to hang with this, the way that the uh, Tuweri was talking about being with anxiousness. And I'm not trying to get rid of it. I'm just broadening and being with it in this particular way. Not denying that, but rather holding all of it in a bigger way. And, and for me, and again, this is just for me, I, you know, I, I've been so inspired by the life of Eddie Hillisome, especially that last year of her life. And, and, you know, it was one of her hopes and aspiration that the purpose of her brief life of 29 years would impact others. And, uh, I, she wrote this passage in her diary, which I think is so striking, especially since there was this strange discovery of her uh, diaries in the 1980s. And I think she wrote this when she was in the transit camp, that last year of her life before uh, going off to Auschwitz. She says, living and dying, sorrow and joy the blisters on my feet in the jasmine behind the house, the persecution, the unspeakable horrors, it is all one in me. And I accept it as all, all as one mighty whole and begin to grasp it better if only for myself without being able to explain to anyone how else, how it all hangs together. I wish I could live for a long time so that one day I may know how to explain it. And if I'm not granted that wish, well then, somebody else will perhaps do it. Carry on from where my life has been cut short. And this is why I must try to live a good life, a faithful life to my last breath, so that those who come after me do not have to start all over again not need to face the same difficulties. Isn't that doing something for future generations? So what you do here really is a gift for future generations. Even if it's a small gift, it's a beautiful and powerful gift. So, so may our our practice here on this retreat lead to the liberation of all beings. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit for uh, a moment here before going into the walking meditation.
Also, just a reminder that uh, for the last sit, if you weren't here for this announcement at the end of the sit, you can come to the last sit just for the chanting, and then you can leave immediately after if you'd like or to continue to sit. So that's still a possibility for tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.